0: The statement, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, it's a, it's a statement that's, that's not necessarily made very, very often anymore. Uh, it used to be as, as common as, as Psalm 23 at a, at a graveside service uh, in, in generations past, and it's not even uh, an exact statement that is, is found within, within Scripture, but it's uh, the sentiments, sentiments are there. I could have you turn the microphone down just a little bit. Thanks. God, He makes Adam from, from the dust. He makes Adam from, from the dirt of the ground. Now, now God does this not, not just because God is, is Creator, God, He does this because He's creative. And so God, He creates man from, from dust. And yet, as He creates man from dust, He has no life within Him. Until, until God breathes the breath of life into, into mankind. It is a, it is a, a physical a truth that, that has spiritual implications. As God breathes life into Adam at, at creation, and as God breathes spiritual life into each of us. Genesis chapter two, verse seven, the text reads The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. It's interesting because the the Hebrew word for man is Adam. Adam, actually. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. And so another way of viewing Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 is the Lord God, He formed the Adam from the dust of the Adama. And he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the Adam became a living being. Of course, later on in, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam becomes this guy's formal name. But my point is this. Adam means from the ground, from the dust, from the earth. We are from the ground. We're from the dust were are from the earth. The title "Earthling" fits here, but I'm not going to go all sci-fi on you. I'm just it's just not it's just not it's just not me. I mean, some of you are like, "Oh yeah, Star Wars, Star Trek." I guess maybe I guess it depends on how you define the category. I'm a I mean I'm a, a Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. I guess I can geek out on you a little bit, Chronicles of Narnia, and so either we agree or don't agree on those things. Earthling. And then, Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of mankind as Adam from the ground, from the dust, from the earth, earth, and Eve, Eve's name literally means in Hebrew, life breath. But in Genesis chapter 3, you have, you have these creatures created, crafted by the Creator. And in particular, you have Adam, this creature creature that is crafted out of dirt that all of a sudden has conned himself into thinking that he can be God. Because that's precisely Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve, right? You can be like God. Because we so want to be gods unto ourselves. And ultimately, what what sin is, and we see it from the very beginning with the fall. What sin is is putting ourselves in the place of God. And so, what follows is the curse. Look at verses seventeen through nineteen of Genesis three. We're going to look at a lot of passages today, and so the majority of them are going to be on the on the screen. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat. Uh, food from, from it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you if you're like me. You've been working in the, in the, the yard a little bit uh, the last couple of weeks trying to get things together, and so you can thank Adam for all of this. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. It's a statement that, that's echoed time and time again in Scripture. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 20, All come from dust, and to dust all return. It's a, it's a statement of our mortality. It's a statement of our humanity. Our, our humanness. In Genesis chapter 18, you have Abraham who pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah not to be destroyed. If only there might be those who are righteous found there. In Abraham, he barters with God. And he says to God, God, I don't deserve for you to, for you to hear my, my pleas. I don't, I don't deserve for you to pay attention to my prayers because I am nothing. But dust and ashes. I'm mortal. I'm human. I'm an earthling. In the book of Daniel, now I know that you're familiar with Daniel in the fiery furnace and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and I know that you're familiar with Daniel in the lion's den, but what about Daniel as he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream? And as Nebuchadnezzar envisions this statue that's made of different kinds of, of descending metals, and as this stone is cast at the feet of this statue that's, that's made of iron mixed with clay and the, the statue crumbles, it's, a, it's a, a portrayal of his kingdom and these subsequent kingdoms being, being overtaken and crumbling. It's where we get the phrase, all men have, have feet of clay. And sometimes we use that as a trite excuse. But still, it's a statement of our humanness. Stick with me. Clay, dirt, ground, Adam, Adam, Adama. Jesus will tell the parable of the seed, the seed that is sown, and the seed, it falls upon different soils, different portions of dirt. And he asks, which Adam, which Adama are you? Are you the ground that receives the kingdom or rejects it? Jesus, in his ministry, he'll he'll bend down and he will write. He gets down in the dirt and he writes in the dirt when a woman is brought to him who's been caught in adultery. Of course, we speculate what did he write? I think one of the things that he could have written was, Where's the man in all this? Jesus, in his ministry, he'll he'll encounter this blind man and he'll take and he'll make some mud from the ground, from the dirt, and he'll put it on a blind man's eyes so that he can see. Jesus will drag a cross through the dirt of Jerusalem outside of the city gate to a big pile of dirt called Golgotha. And he'll die for each of us. It's humanness, mortality, dust and ashes. King David in Psalm 63, O God, You are my God, earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for you. My my whole being longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And we miss it, but David, he sees it. David, he sees it clearly. He senses and he feels within this statement the connection to creation. We're parched ground in need of healing rain, dust and ashes. We need God. We can't do this on our own. So often we try to do it on our own. We try to do it all on our own until we realize that we can't do it on our own. And then it's like we treat God like he's 911 or something. We don't call him until we need him. And then we complain about how long it takes for him to get there and what he did when he got there. And what God is after, what God wants is to be with us. And that should blow our minds, shouldn't it? That that we who are created are pursued by our Creator. We who are just creatures from dust, who are nothing but dust and ashes. We mortals who are offered immortality, And my point is that that, that relationship that God wants, that covenant that God offers, that immortality that God promises to we who are mortal, it simply doesn't happen outside of the scope of the covenant that God offers. God, God's the one that dictates the terms. We engage in relationship with Him, wonderful, glorious, grace-filled, kingdom-immersed relationship with God, and yet we engage in relationship with God on His terms, or not at all. And eternity rests upon whether we do or whether we don't. And one of the things that God requires of we creatures from the dust from dirt one of the things that god requires of us one of the primary things required from us in order for us to engage in a relationship with god that he's designed is repentance to live repentant lives to live penitent lives Stick with me. Go to the next slide. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus, he begins to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles, if the mighty works that were performed in you would have been performed, would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, these pagan cities, I'm telling you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, that's a symbol. That's a sign of repentance sackcloth and ashes it's a it's a theme that we see all throughout the old testament it's a statement to god god everything that i have comes from you god i'm nothing nothing without you anything that i can accomplish on my own is nothing compared to you sackcloth and ashes it's a symbol it's a it's a sign of repentance. A sign of not only recognizing how we've failed, and yet an acknowledgement of God, I'm willing to do something. Because repentance is more than repentance is more than reporting to God that we have failed Him, right? Because I mean God already knows. So repentance is more than just acknowledging to God that we've, that we've sinned. Repentance is, I've been walking away from God. I've turned my back on God. I'm living a life that's contrary to God. And repentance is turning and walking toward God, pursuing God. This God who wants a relationship with me, to repent is to change, to live a life marked by repentance is to constantly turn toward God look at these verses Genesis chapter 37 Jacob after hearing of of Joseph's death which in the words of Mark Twain was greatly exaggerated but verse 34 now this isn't in regard to to repentance but this is in in regard to his mortality and humanity Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he, he mourned for his son many days. Jacob, remorseful, acknowledging to God, God, everything I have comes from you. I'm mortal. You're God, and I'm not. First Chronicles 21, verse 16, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Talk about a fearful sight. And then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell down. Nehemiah nine. As the wall surrounding Jerusalem has been rebuilt, restored, and the law of Moses has been, re- re- has been read, the city has been rededicated. Verse one of Nehemiah nine. On the twenty fourth day of this month, the children of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt adama upon them. Why? To show repentance. There's action. Job, Job chapter 42, this is at the very end of the Job story. I repent in dust and ashes. Daniel 9, after Daniel understood that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Verse 3, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And then Jonah. You have Jonah chapter 3, you have have Jonah who's what? Who's been going, he's been traveling away from God. And then God brings about repentance, brings him back to himself through some pretty interesting means. And then you have verse 5, the Ninevites, they believed God, which is following the most, I mean, the briefest sermon in the world. Because in verse 4, you have Jonah who, who says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Let's all stand and sing. That's it. Eight words. And the Ninevites, they believed God. They declared a fast. And all, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes. Ashes. What's the reference to Repentance. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. A reference to Genesis. A reference to our mortality. God, I've I've got nothing without you. God, I I am nothing without you. Nothing but, but dust and ashes. But there's also, woven within this, The repentance that is required for God's people to be forgiven because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, what was required in order for the people to be forgiven? Sacrifice. And the sacrifices, as they are offered, the sacrificed, sacrifices are consumed, how? By fire. And after the sacrifices are consumed... What remains? Nothing but ashes. So that the people could be forgiven. So that the people could live a life in relationship with God. Fast forward to the New Testament and the covenant covenant that we're offered through the gospel of Jesus Jesus, our sacrifice. We cannot accept Jesus. We cannot live in covenant relationship with God without repentance. Without living a life of repentance. Yes, we we repent, we turn to God as we're immersed in baptism, which is what God requires. But we also live a penitent life. We live a life of repentance. And repentance is not simply being sorry. To repent is the change. When the prodigal son re- returns to his, his father, it, it could be appropriately stated, when the prodigal son returns to his prodigal father. Now that sounds out there to us. The prodigal father. But the word prodigal means excessive, lavish, extravagant. And it describes the son because the son has rebelled and what? Walked away from the father's home. And yet, when the father runs to greet him and embraces him and restores him, he is extravagant with his love. He's wasteful in his grace as he pours abundance upon this son who's returned. And of course, we understand Jesus to be saying through the parable, this is God. This is God. The prodigal son, once he's hungry enough, comes to his senses and he returns to the Father's table. He was once, even for a long time, he was traveling away from the Father's house. But then he makes the journey home to his father's embrace. And the son demonstrates repentance. Because to repent is to change. To change when you've failed God. And we use words like fail. I think we're more more comfortable with that word. Rather than designated sin for what it is. Rebellion against God. And when you rebel against God which is what sin is. Saying to God, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. After you've sinned, quite frankly, isn't going to cut it. Not if we're going to understand this from a biblical perspective. Not in the way that God has orchestrated our relationship with him. And again, God's the one that dictates the terms. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Godly sorrow brings about repentance. Even in the, within the context of the few verses around this verse, you have Paul who's writing the Corinthians again, and he says, in my former letter, I said some pretty harsh things. And I said some things that caused you sorrow, that caused you to be sorrowful, that caused you regret. And I, I didn't do it to just to make you sorrowful. I did it for change. And even though it hurt you at the time, God has brought about repentance. Godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And so it seems that the Apostle Paul, he's drawing this dividing line between being sorry and truly repenting. That there's a, there's a dividing line between guilt even and repentance, which is required for forgiveness. And Paul says it's not as if guilt or being sorrowful can't lead toward repentance. As a matter of fact, oftentimes, it's guilt and sorrow that brings us to repentance. But he's drawing this dividing line between between the two. When Tiers and I... First married, she had a she had a 1987 Honda Civic CRX. You remember the car? Every time we see one driving down the road now, even if we're by ourselves, you know, I, I'll be driving down the road, I'll see one, and I'll take a picture and I'll, I'll send it send it to her. She had a, an 87 Honda CRX. It was a a two door Honda Civic, two bucket seats in the front, no back seat. Had a five on the floor. Fast, sporty little car. She and her dad, they go and they they find this car. They do their research. Finally, her, you know, they, they they find this car. She loved that car. And so we get married. And even even after we even after we had Mason, if we wanted to go anywhere as a family, we had to ride in my truck because I had a bench seat and and you know, three of us fit in there. Um, we couldn't go anywhere as a family in her two seater. Now back then, she even she would put the car seat in the front bucket seat. Uh, with Mason facing forward, no doubt. I mean, of course, in those days, we were just lucky he was in a car seat, right? And so Tirsa has this car that she loves. Great car. And yet she, she gets to the point where she says, and we, and we say, we agree, you know, we, we need a four-door. We need a little sedan. We need something with a back seat so we can all go in this, this car. And uh, my dad had a friend who was selling a little Mazda 323 three, three, four-door. And the car was only 600 bucks. Tirso never looked at the car before I went and bought the car. It was awful. I'm telling you, it was, it was, it was awful. It, uh, it had dents all over it. it uh, the guy smoked like a freight train inside the car. The, the, the top of the car on the inside was like nicotine-colored. And so I do this all on my own. I sell this car that she loved for thirty-five hundred bucks, and then I went and bought this car that she did not love for six hundred bucks. Now that's not the worst part. The worst part is I sold one car for thirty-five hundred, bought another one for six hundred, and I bought myself a very nice boat. I mean, it was a nice boat. <laughs> and in my defense, in my defense, I was I was twenty I was twenty years old whenever I whenever I, I did all of that. I asked Tirsa if I could share the story and she said, sure, share it. It doesn't reflect reflect poorly on me. <laughs> What's the dividing line between being sorry and repentance? Not continuing to, continuing to do the same thing over and over again. Not continuing to, to behave in the same way. Not, not choosing to make the same choices. To repent is to change. There's a change of direction, a change of heart. And When it comes to God, the difference between sorry and repentance, the difference between being sorry and repentance... May very well be the difference between heaven or hell. If you're simply saying to God, God, I am sorry after you've sinned, that's not what He's after. <coughs> Grief, sorrow, remorse, regret, good. Good on you. It can lead toward repentance. It can lead toward repentance, but it's not repentance. Grief without action, sorrow, remorse even without action, can be very self-serving. And sometimes we are great at acknowledging our sin, but then we acknowledge it, whatever it is, and we do absolutely nothing about it. And that's just not repentance. To repent is to act, to change, to come alive, to be resurrected, to be raised to life, to be transformed. All of that to say that we who are but dust and ashes, it's demanded of us that we live a life of ashes, a life of repentance through our sacrifice. Jesus. In a penitent life, that's baseline. That's the reference point. Without it, we cannot be in a right relationship with God. Without repentance, without biblical, real-deal repentance, more than being sorry, but doing something, taking action, making changes in regard to sinful ways, without it is to refuse what God has designed. Which is just going to put you on the losing end every time. And the next level of this is God is the one who redeems us when we look around at our lives and there's nothing left but ashes. Jesus will quote from Isaiah chapter 61 in in his ministry as as he points toward who he is, the promise of God in the Messiah, the one who's proclaiming good news to the poor and binding up the brokenhearted and releasing from darkness those who are in prison. And in verse 3 of Isaiah 61, he says, the Lord will bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That's what God offers what God promises. It's what God does. Isn't that what God did through the cross? God takes this instrument of shame and pain and torture, and for three days, everything seemed to be lost. Everyone looked around, and all they saw were ashes. He takes this instrument of death, and yet in it we find life. It's what God does for us. It's what He does. It's what He offers. But only through repentance. Repentance is fundamental in humanity's relationship with God. The same that was true of the Old Covenant in Israel's practice is true of us through Jesus. So if that's true and we believe it to be true, then why do we avoid repentance? Could it be that the very sinful nature within us that compels us to sin and to require repentance in the first place is also the same sinful nature that if we allow it, compels us to refuse to repent either out of pride or arrogance or even out of fear or denial because maybe if I don't acknowledge it to be true, somehow it won't, it won't be true, which of course puts us right there with Adam and Eve in the garden hiding from God, as if he doesn't already know. Repentance is both a blessing and a requirement. Wasn't that Peter's message at Pentecost? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus. (coughs) Repentance is more than reporting our sins to God. It's more than being sorry. It's walking, having walked in a way that's contrary to God and then turning and walking toward God. And if you want to be saved, and if you want to remain in a saved state, to be in a right relationship with God... You cannot be either without being forgiven. And you can't be forgiven without repentance. Psalm 32.1 Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's what God gives. But to repent is to Change. Sorry doesn't bring forgiveness. Repentance does. And repentance is more than remorse or regret. Repentance is doing something. The gospel of Jesus is good news. And even in making that statement, the gospel is gospel. The good news of Jesus is good news. And it's good news because you don't have to be from a certain place, you don't have to be born into a certain family. You don't have to have a certain tax bracket. You don't have to have a diploma. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have any of those things. All you have to have is Jesus. But you can't get Jesus unless there's repentance. He's the one who redeems and who restores and who renews. He's the one who even at times he absolutely wrecks us but with the greater goal of change, of transformation, of repentance. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Two weeks from today will be Easter morning. And we, we acknowledge, I mean, the church comes together on Sundays. Why? Some sort of sense of Sabbath? No, absolutely not. We gather together on Sunday because Sunday is the day of resurrection. And we are a resurrected people. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ as as a resurrected people as we gather together on Sunday and as we leave here and live our lives day in and day out. The resurrection is definitive and it defines us. And yet two weeks from today, we have an opportunity to be able to, to, to not only be here, but to ask others to come and to be here with us. For them to to maybe have an opportunity to come and to to share. And maybe you know somebody who, maybe they're not plugged into a church family. Maybe they haven't ever been or haven't been for a long time. Seek to make the most of this opportunity that God has given us to be able to, to come together and to worship Him on a day that they know other people who are visiting are going to be here as well. But you and I, how can we celebrate resurrection without repentance? How can we celebrate Easter without being a penitent people? How can we celebrate Christ's resurrection and our resurrection without repentance? Without coming clean with the ways that we've failed Him, rebelled against Him, and making the choice, the kingdom choice, to do something. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. But what I'm saying this morning is that it's gospel. <coughs> this morning we want to offer a time of, of response. And it's a time to respond. It's really, it's the imitation of the Lord. It's not ours. It's the one that He offers us. Maybe you need to, to change and we can support you in some way, we'd be honored to do so. Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ, and you know that's what He wants of you. we can bless you in some way, come forward as we stand, and as Aaron leads us in song.